National Archives podcast series. In a most miserable and neglected condition. Our ancestors and the fear of the Victorian workhouse. Presented by Paul Carter. This event was recorded live on the 23rd of February, 2012, at the National Archives, Q. Right, okay, what I'm going to... What I'm going to do in the next sort of 55 minutes is I want to look at the, uh, the Victorian workhouse and the Victorian poor law system in general. And I'm also going to look at towards the end of the talk some of the sources um, that fam particularly family historians can use to try to track people through the system. Because the system's quite a complex one. And it's possible sometimes to find somebody somewhere in the archive, but not somewhere else. And that can be for a variety of, uh, of reasons. But I've, I thought for this talk what I would do is kind of look at this system, but through this notion of fear. What is it that made people afraid of the Victorian workhouse? Just before I came to work here, and I came to work here in the 1990s, but just before I came to work here, I worked at Ealing Hospital, which is a, a tower hospital. It's sort of ten floors. And we had a patient on the ward there, and this was a story that one of the sisters uh, in one of the care for the elderly wards told me about, where uh, the, the patient wouldn't settle, was very agitated, moving around, wouldn't lie, wouldn't stay still. And she was trying to find out, what is it? What, what are you right? And what she said was, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in the workhouse. And the hospital's built on the old pauper lunatic asylum, which was associated with the workhouse system. And this is in the 1990s. And the legislation that I'm going to be looking at, the, 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 the new pool, or the Victorian pool, or starts in the 1830s. It goes by 1930, but still in the 1990s, it still had that element of concern and fear about it. And so what I, want, what I thought I'd do is look at the, the poor law system, but look at it through that kind of, a, of an angle. Okay then, in a most miserable and neglected condition, our ancestors and the fear of the Victorian workhouse. I'm starting with something really quite contemporary, and what's happening over in Greece at the moment. And we'll have seen on the TV screens and the news this huge concern about what's happening in Greece. Um, and the kind of welfare cuts that are, are being made over there at this moment as a way of trying to get down their kind of national debt and their expenditure. And those cuts will have very real impact on the people who live over there. It will be enormous. And that's why we're seeing the kind of reaction for people who live in Greece. They... In a, in a way, it's kind of, if, if these cuts go through in the way that they are currently planned, they know what that impact is going to be on them and their lives and their children. What we're going to look at was a, an earlier welfare reform, and that's in this country in 1834. And there were riots and disturbances in England in that time, in 1834. So I just want to say that although what we're going to do, we're going to have quite a, I hope, quite an enjoyable afternoon looking through the records, you know, we can track things, see the kind of things that's in it. The impact of the 1834 legislation was absolutely massive. And for those of you who do in family history, then we've got to bear that in mind when we look through these records. 
You know, what, what would it have felt like for your ancestor if they ever come into contact with this system? And of course, poor relief in the 1830s and 1840s, it's just an accident away. For anybody who's in, in employment, it's just an accident away. Break a leg, catch your fingers in the machinery, explosion down in the mine, somebody's injured. It's just, you're just that far away from not being able to provide for you and yours. And then you would have to turn to the, the system that I'm going I'm to describe. And it's not that far back. Generationally, you don't have to go that far back to get to the 1840s, 1850s, or the 1880s, 1890s. Um, my dad was born in the 1920s. My dad was quite old when I was born. So, <clears throat> and my granddad was born in the 1880s, and his dad in the 1840s. So I only have to, I only have to go back about three or four generations, and I'm kind of there. So it's not that far back when you're counting generations. Um, isn't the, the Victorian uh, pool law. It's quite near to us. What I want to talk about is England and Wales. England and Wales has uh, legislation which is different to that of Scotland and different to that of Ireland. And the records that I'm going to be talking about refer to England and Wales. And they refer to records that we hold and that are also held in county record offices because the archives are split. And I'll show you when we get to the end of the talk, I'll, I'll go into the archival side of it, and I'll show you why they're split in the certain ways that they are. But it does mean that you have to go to different archives to, to really track and trace people through the, the system. Now, in order to get to 1834 and the new pool law, <clears throat> I've, kind of, I've condensed this because I'm going to do this relatively quickly. I'm just going to talk about what the old pool law was so that we can see what a big difference happens in 1834. Because in 1834, what you have is something called the Pool Law Amendment Act. And that word amendment just sounds like we've really got a pool. We're just going to amend it a little bit. We're just going to change this little bit and that little bit. And it's not. It's a huge shift. And you can only really tell when you look at what just come before it. So the old pool law, the Elizabethan pool law, um, codified 1601, it really sought out three groups of individuals and said, these people will have a right to relief, and the state accepts that. And we will put into place legislation that will ensure relief for those individuals. The impotent poor, those who, for whatever reason, cannot provide for themselves, they may be too old, too infirm, they might have had an accident, they might be too young, might be orphaned. But it's understood that they can't provide for themselves. So the impotent poor get a tick against that and the state says, yes, we accept the responsibility, the state's responsibility. <clears throat> for, the, for the young poor, sort of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, Training and education, pauper apprenticeship schemes. If we give the individual the skills that they require for later in life, then we will prevent them, in common parlance of the time, from being a burden on the rates. We will provide them with the skills and the knowledge they need to provide in the outside world. So that was another area where money could be raised and expended on the poor. The hardest one, and it's still the hardest one today is the able-bodied. Those who can work, but for whatever reason, are not in work. 
and the state kind of ticked that as well, but it was always a bit more contentious. Initially, it was about providing a, a stock of work that you could set the able-bodied to work on. But it quickly became much more of a, in a way, a, a welfare system. So this is the, like the Elizabethan welfare system that we're looking at. <clears throat> now, the state, though, was very small. Central government was very small at that time. So the local government unit that was tasked to provide relief in the localities was the vestry, the local vestry. So the local government unit, the vestry, would meet. The incumbent, the local vicar, local rector, would normally chair the meetings of the, the vestry, and he'd be joined there with the church warden, who would assist the uh, incumbent with the upkeep of the church. Would, uh, also there is the surveyor of the highways, who would have responsibility for the maintenance of local roads within the parish. Uh, and the way that this would work, of course, is that if you know, in my parish we'd be responsible for our roads until they reached your parish, and then you're responsible as your parish surveyor until they reach your parish. You get a network of roads like this. The parish constable, which of course is the most local of the, the officers for, for law enforcement, sat initially with the manor, but that moved across to the vestry as we go through the 17th and 18th centuries. <clears throat> now, added to this in 1601, is this officer here, the local overseer of the poor. And the local overseer of the poor had certain rights and obligations and responsibilities. One of that was to raise a rate. It was to raise an amount of money based on the land held by others within the parish. So it was a local rated system based on land. So if we imagine that we are the parish of Kew here today and the people in these two lines here uh, are landholders they kind of, you're doing quite well you're local farmers you know, you're, you're doing all right um, the rest of the people over here are the laboring poor now what I mean by that is you're not you're not claiming relief you're, you're laboring you're you're getting by but pretty much just about the people in the three rows just here, though, you're not getting by. And these are our paupers. Yes, you may well pull a face. These are our, <laughs> these are our paupers over, over here. So we've got our uh, farmers and those who are holding land here. We've got the labouring poor. Who these people are employing, these are the people who you employ. Yes, they should be very grateful. I've used this. <laughs> but you're also paying into the vestry, a rated amount of money. That money is then used by the vestry, this local government unit, to provide and pay for the local poor, the paupers over, over here. Um, and if you imagine this across the 10,000 parishes of uh, England and Wales, you've got a little seed there of conflict. Because you're not that keen on paying in. And they're not that keen on the vestry cutting the rates down. Because that means that's the least you're going to, you're going to get. So within every parish you've got this potential conflict um, within, within the society. <clears throat> Very quickly under the old poor law, 
Although the statutes say, here is how money will be raised, so it depends on how much land you hold and the quality of that land, that will determine how much money you're paying into the pot. It doesn't say how the money is going to be spent. So what you get is a patchwork of different systems on a parish-by-parish parish basis. Some parishes will provide money doles to paupers. So after services, just outside the vestry, on a Sunday, the paupers will line up. You get a, a small amount of money, which will tide you over until the next meeting when you may come for further relief. And so some people will get these money doles. And some parishes will do that, because if I'm the local overseer... That's not my job. My job is, I'm perhaps a farmer rather like the, uh, the eight people here. So I want something quick, something very quick, so that I can get back to what is you know, my real work. Um, but giving money dolls was sometimes considered quite dangerous. Because what are they going to spend it on? Sorry? On drink. A typical rate payer. Yes, here we go. But those are the kind of concerns, and you see them written about in the contemporary literature of the time, that if you give the poor, if you give money to paupers, they may spend it on things that you don't want them to. And you are the ratepayer, so surely, as you're paying in, your wishes into what it's spent on should be taken into account. Yes? They're all nodding down here, <laughs> shaking their heads over there. <coughs> So some parishes will say, we won't do that. We won't, we won't provide money. What we'll do is we'll provide relief in kind. So we'll buy food in bulk. We'll buy clothes or materials in bulk. And we will distribute that to the local poor. And they can't then spend it on things that we don't want them to. Some parishes will buy houses or they'll rent houses. And that will provide cheap housing for paupers. So there's this kind of divergence between giving them money direct and then this relief in kind. And relief in kind can cover a whole load of things. It could also include, of course, parish apprenticeships, where the parish funds the apprentice of a young, uh, young pauper. Some parishes would provide work-related materials. So they'd buy hemp and buy a, some uh, spinning wheels and set paupers to work. So some parishes would set paupers to work, to work for their... Uh, their, their relief. And some parishes, though not many, would build workhouses. I'm going to come on to the Victorian system being a workhouse system, but they don't, they don't arrive in 1834. There are already workhouses that are there, and, so, and some from the 17th century. Um, but they are very few. You know, we're talking about 10,000 parishes. We might be talking about 300 workhouses, so it's, it's quite small in terms of how people get relief. Most people get relief outdoor, outside of the workhouse. This graph gives you the expenditure on poor relief for England and Wales. And you see that nothing happens until sort of the 1690s over here. <clears throat> and that's when the Board of Trade is asked to find out how much is being expended on relief. And they find out it's around about £400,000. And it's decided that's an awful lot of money. How do we get that down? What we can see, though, from the graph is that that's not what happens and that we have kind of a year-on-year-on-year -year -year increase in expenditure under the old poor law. The reason why we don't have a, an annual 
amount of money there is that government undertakes a survey but only on certain years. But it's clear that the amount is going up. Now, part of that is, as we've already mentioned, the population is increasing. So we would expect the expenditure to go up if just proportionately everything stayed the same. But if you go to local overseers' accounts, which are kept in the county record offices, you can see that actually what they're doing is they're spending money on things that they hadn't spent on it before. So you get to the late 18th century and you see quite a substantial amount of money being paid for people to go into uh, private madhouses, which you wouldn't have got in the late 17th century. So they, they do seem to be spending money on different things, more things, if you like, as time goes on. Now, this <clears throat> amount of expenditure goes up. Historians, there's a kind of consensus by the 1790s, though, we have a real crisis under the old poor law. Uh, a, a real crisis. What's happening is that the price of food is going up so highly in the 1790s that if we imagine our, our labouring poor, the majority of you here, so not our ratepayers, not our paupers, but our labouring poor, the kind of things that you used to be able to buy in the 1770s and 1780s, it's getting beyond you now. It's, it's getting higher and higher. It doubles, and then it doubles again. The price of bread increases so high, the price of wheat um, goes through the roof. And that means that you're in danger of falling into here. And for some of the smaller farmers, you're in danger of falling into there. So the 1790s is regarded by historians as a really pro a problematic decade. That out, of, out of ten seasons, eight are very poor in terms of uh, crops and crop growth. And that's one of the reasons why the prices spiral so high. And of course we're at war with France, so we've got an, an additional expenditure that, we've, that we're, we're seeking to do. The other thing that's happened is our economy has turned. If you look at our economy in the 1750s, we're a net exporter of grain. We grow enough grain to feed the population and export some. By the 1790s, we don't. We import grain. We don't grow enough food now for this rising population. Our economy is in good shape because what we are now is we're an industrial nation. We make things and we sell things on the market internationally. And with the profits of that, we buy foodstuffs in. So our economy has changed over. And the result of that is that... A lot of vestries, in order to overcome these economic problems, they start to top up the uh, wages of the labouring poor within their communities. So these people pay you all a wage, but in the vestry, what we're doing, because the price of bread and, and sort of staple food stuff has gone up so much, we're now topping it up. So we can see that <clears throat> the 1790s is really quite problematic. Now going to rush through a few things here to get us up to 1834, but that period from the 1790s right through to 1834, the number of times that the state makes investigations into poor relief and the way poor relief is managed is enormous. It's enormous. The number of royal, uh, uh, royal commissions, select committees into this is really quite large, and there's a lot of pamphlet literature and some people say what we need to do is abolish the poor law. If we abolish the poor law, then wages will go back up because no longer can you 
sort of rely upon the vestry topping it up. Because on the other hand, from the poor's perspective, to get rid of the poor law altogether means you lose a right, a legal right, to relief. Something which you've had since the Elizabethan period. Uh, this is the oldest welfare rights system on the planet for this country. We, the, you know, there, there wasn't people around in the Elizabethan period in other nations that had this. It's a legal right to relief. So what happens is there's a number of ideas put forward. And in Nottinghamshire, there are a number of areas that start to experiment with other ways of providing relief. And at Southall in Nottinghamshire, there's a workhouse built, I think it's just outside Southall in Upton. A number of parishes come together in the 1820s. They build a workhouse and they build it as a deterrent system. In other words, the local poor in those local parishes, and I think there's about 40-odd parishes that are involved in this, when the poor apply for relief, that relief is to be given in the workhouse. And the conditions in the workhouse are to be controlled. And they halve the rates. They halve the rates in places like Southall and, uh, and Bingham in Nottinghamshire. But that doesn't lead to an overall of the system. That comes later. That comes following the swing riots in 1830-31. These are disturbances mainly in the south and southeast, but they spread across the south and they spread up into the, the Midlands. And the riots are around things like levels of wages, levels of poor relief, new technology being brought into agriculture, things like the threshing machines. Threshing the wheat out supplied winter work in agricultural districts. The new threshing machines meant that, that all that work would be done until well, October and November and then finished, which left a lot of the labouring poor now going into this group for about six months of the year. So there were a lot of unrest and unhappiness uh, in 1830 around wages, work, the amount of work uh, that was supplied and the amount of relief. And that explodes into these riots, the swing riots. Following this in 1832, there's a Royal Commission of Inquiry. And they report in 1834. They report in 1834. And the Royal Commission of Inquiry ask each of the parishes, did you have any riots? Did you have some disturbances? And why? Why do you think those things were happening? And one of the things that came back an awful lot was the way in which relief was awarded to people. Now, I've got a copy of the report here. It's extremely unhistorical. They asked questions like, uh, in what year did you introduce allowances on top of wages? And your parish might respond, uh, 18, so, uh, 1795, 1796. They never say, and when did you stop? So what they'd done essentially was said, we've already made our minds up of what we're going to do. Can somebody now write a report saying why it's right? And it was that kind of way around was the report. Um, but what I'd like to do now, I'd like to invite Adrian to come up and join me. We had a conversation about this earlier, Adrian. Could you just pop up for a second? <clears throat> because one of the things that they do in this report, yeah, yeah, is, um, is they, they examine the way that relief is offered um, prior to this, what we're going to see, this new reform. Okay, if you could just stand there, Adrian, just face the, face the front there. This is not practice. 
No, 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 no. I spoke to him only a couple of minutes before we started. <clears throat> what they're going to do, what they're going to do following the, um, well, this is what the Royal Commission suggested happen, and it's what does happen, is we're going to take a labourer of the lowest description. <laughs> yeah? <do> my <laughs> and what we're going to do, what we're gonna, this, is, this is the attempt here. We're going to measure Adrian's standard of living. So what we're going to look at is how much income, how much you're paying on rent, how much you're paying on food, uh, how many children you've got, how big the family is that you're providing for. And we're going to mark that off. Okay? So we're gonna, that's what we're going to do. We're going to measure the lowest paid labourer and we're going to set a marker for that. Adrian, thank you very much. <coughs> Round of applause for Adrian there. Come on. Well done. <coughs> so we're going to mark that off. And what we're now going to do is we're going to introduce a system of relief below that. That's what we're going to do. So we need to have some quite major reforms in place for this. Um, and those reforms come through this piece of legislation, but also their report, their report. Because the report as set out doesn't all make it into the legislation. But what does happen is that the poor law commission that is set up in 1834 is pretty much given the report and said, you, you implement this, you implement this. So there's a lot of vagueness in the legislation. The thing is, what historians tend to say is, is it's going this way. It maybe, not, it maybe wouldn't have come in 1834 and in exactly the same way as it would have done under the 1832 uh, government reforms. But the, the opinion, if you like, was t opinions turning against these people pretty much from the late teens and throughout the 1820s. Governments are looking for a harder and a harsher system. And that's why we see this thing happening at Sutherland in the 1820s and being lauded as a big success. It's not seen as a big failure. It's cut the rates in half. So possibly it maybe would have come, or something like it would have come, but maybe a few years later on. So from 1834, we get the establishment of a poor law commission in London. So now, instead of each parish deciding how we're going to provide relief, that goes out of the window. What's going to happen now is we're going to have a, a, an attempt at a uniform system of welfare across England and Wales. So, we have the Poor Law Commission in London. Individual parishes, do you remember that earlier we said, you know, we're the parish of Kew. Well, what's going to happen now is that individual parishes are going to be brought together into bigger local government units. And those local government units are referred to as Poor Law Unions. Yeah? So you've got these two new kinds of institutions, the Poor Law Commission in London and the hundreds, I think by the 1850s you've got maybe 600 Poor Law Unions around the country. And these commissioners are assisted by assistant Poor Law Commissioners who go out across the country and initially their job was to bring those unions together, come to the arrangements and the agreements with local landowners, which <coughs> parish is going to go in with which parish. And then it's to supervise those individual unions. They'd be given a region, and their job is to look after those regions. And I've picked out what I think are the four 
key elements here of the report and the legislation. The first is that outdoor relief can continue for the aged and infirm, but it would be abolished for the able-bodied. They would be offered the house. So if we go back to Adrian being here earlier, let's say Adrian fell on hard times and he could not, he could not make enough money to provide for him and his family. Under the old pool law, he could come to the vestry and say, I've fallen on hard times, maybe I've had an accident, I can't work for the next three weeks, but I'll be okay after that. And he'd get a few shillings to tide him and he'd go on his merry way. If he's an able-bodied labourer now approaching for relief, I, he won't get that offer of money. He won't get an offer of in-kind. What he'll get is an offer of the house. And it's a legal right, just as we talked about earlier. But now Adrian makes the choice of to bring himself and his family into the workhouse or to say, I'll try and get by on a bit less. I'll see if I can borrow from some of my neighbours. I'll see if I can just do without some things from now on. And I'll hope that the local economy picks up and that I can get a job and that I can get employment again. Now, that's one of the ways in which the rates are going to be reduced because that's a self-acting test. And the test for Adrian is, how poor do you feel right now? So, the main four points then. Out relief can continue for the um, elderly and the infirm. It's abolished for the able-bodied. They'd be offered the house. We've seen with that little exercise with Adrian, though. Conditions within the workhouse are to be less eligible, i.e. below that of the lowest paid labourer. And the idea behind that is to make the workhouse a feared institution of last resort. It's to make you not want to go in. Um, in order to do that, though, you have to take away that discretion that each parish would have had. That's the reason for establishing a central pool law commission, because that's what would remove that individual discretion at the local level. Um, and the parishes themselves, as we said, they'd be joined together to make the larger local government units. So those are the, three, the four key points, I think, around 1834 and the, the legislation that we see, that we see straight away. Workhouses aren't prisons, but they do look a lot like them. And if you were inside one, there's a lot of stuff there around doors and locks and windows that you can't see through and that might be quite high and people can't see in. So although they're not prisons, they do have that kind of prison look to them. It's one of the points I want to make, because we're going to go on to this thing about fear and why people would, would maybe not want to go in. Why would Adrian maybe walk away and not allow his family to go in? So there's a number of things. They look a bit like prisons, and they were built to give the pauper or the prospective pauper this sense of awe when they apply for relief, when you go down to the local workhouse. If you ever go to somewhere like uh, Clan Bufflin or, or at Suville, where there are workhouses and they, they still more or less in their own form exist, you know, they're, they're big buildings within their own landscape and they would have been really quite shocking when you first approach it. You know, these huge, huge buildings. So there's, this, there's these areas of fear and repugnance that people felt at the time. And like I say, for those of you doing family history, I think these are exactly the kind of things that would have come through your ancestor's mind 
knowing that you're just an accident away from needing to make a claim on the local authorities. Now, within workhouses, paupers are punished. And there are, in county record offices up and down the country, these things called punishment books. And if you have paupers within a workhouse that you, you, know, that you think has been uh, in, in the workhouse there, it's worthwhile pursuing that. I mean, they have literally books with, with lists of names um, where the names of individual paupers would be recorded. And the poor law commission say you will record it in these kind of ways, the name, what it is that they did, what punishment they were to receive. And that was usually around um, reduction of diet or a period locked in a cell uh, on, on your own, or for, uh, for, for boys, for children who are boys, uh, corporal punishment um, and the cane. So you do get these things, punishment books. But it's more than that. This is taken, uh, I think Audrey for gave me a copy of this the other day. <coughs> this is from the Huddersfield Daily Chronicle, and it's a story from London though and it's a sad domestic tragedy and it's a couple who commit suicide and the reporters say you know it's evident what's happened here uh, both bodies were much emaciated and the cause for self-destruction evidently poverty in the room was a letter in, in a man's handwriting which said we've poisoned ourselves so as to escape the workhouse as we have no money and nothing to make anything of we owe two weeks rent I've been out of work seven months may the Lord forgive us and it's a really quite it's kind of heart-wrenching that, that people would fear the workhouse that much and fear the system that much that they would take those kind of steps. And I've come across a number of reports of suicide where people say, you know, rather than go in, I'd, I'd rather die, I'd rather commit suicide. Or for some, they've kind of stayed outside for so long and their health have deteriorated so bad that... Even by going into the workhouse now, there's nothing that can be done by the local medical officers. And now, what, what I have done, I'm going to now go through a number of records to show you. Where I've taken these from are from our records here at the National Archives. And that's these volumes over there. And they're books of letters which have been bound up. And they start around 1834... They finished, unfortunately, in 1900. The material from uh, 1900 to 1929 was, was bombed out and destroyed during the, the Second World War. Um, but there are nearly 17,000 volumes, and they relate to the poor law unions across England and Wales. This is one of the biggest sets of the archive that the centre produced. This is the Poor Law Commission Poor Law Board. Um, and we do have a guide to that that's been published uh, about six, seven weeks ago. Um, there are, I, I will say this no more. There are copies downstairs, I think, in the bookshop. They're about a fiver. But it, it goes through and it tells you what kind of records you'll find within it. <clears throat> because what happens is, is that the centre and all of these poor law unions, once they're established, they engage in this kind of round of information sharing. And it's a continuous round of information sharing. There are letters if not daily, then every couple of days from each of the poor law unions going into the centre. And the draft letters are contained in those volumes of what goes back. So you get both sides uh, of the story. So the records that I'm going to show you are going to come from these uh, records. And they're called MH12, Poor Law Union Correspondence. Why would people, though, fear going into the workhouse? It's a, 
it's a hard enough world in the 1830s and 1840s. And I spoke to a couple of colleagues this morning about, you know, if you work in a factory in the 1830s, it's dangerous. If you work down the pit in the 1830s, it's dangerous. So what are the reasons, then, that the poor put forward themselves for why they don't want to go into the workhouse? And one of them, I think you were mentioning about respectability, this, this, I think shame is certainly one of them. Um, in, in the language of the 1830s, 1840s, if you needed to claim relief, then there's something wrong with you. It's a very personal thing. And it was very much of the rhetoric of the new pool law, that there's, there's, work, there's work out there, and somehow you've not got it, and there's something wrong with you. If you're an able-bodied labourer, there's no reason why you shouldn't. So shame is one of the big things um, about this. Being separated from loved ones and, and, uh, and from the family. Once you go into the workhouse, the husband is going to go one way, the wife's going to go another, the children, they're going to be separated. And depending on their age, they could then be separated themselves into the girls' and, the, and, and boys' wards. So there's that division of the family once you enter that. It could be the conditions in the workhouse. It might be the more general conditions, or it might be the food that's in the workhouse. They might also fear the non-provision of relief. They might also fear, at the hands of union officers, harsh treatment. And that might include physical violence as well as non-physical violence. They might also fear intimidation from other paupers within, within the workhouse. They're going to be quite rough and ready places um, at the, the workhouses. And I'm sure these are the kind of things that would have happened in the 1830s and 1840s. They may also fear a lack of medical care and a lack of independence. But they may have feared these, but can we find that within the archives, though? I mean... Can we actually do that? Can we find the material? And I've tried to go through these kind of things to look at archivally how can we can rescue some of this. These are both letters from uh, MH12. Uh, one's from North Shields and the other is from Clutton. So we're both sides, of, both ends of the, the country there. What they're both talking about is the unfairness of individuals who claim relief because their names are now going to be printed and put on the church doors. And that's one of the ways in which shame is built into the system. It's not, a, it's not a, an unwanted aspect of the system. It's something which was built in. And here what you see is uh, people talking about the ratepayers themselves condemning what they see to be a cruel act of holding up to the public gaze the little pittance our more unfortunate neighbours receive. That's from 1864. Uh, up in, uh, in North Shields. And again here they're saying, look, you know, well what about those who only claim medical relief? Can't we exclude them from going on the, the lists? So we can see that one of the things that people fear is that lack, the, the way in which their respectability will be diminished and that they will be shamed. We've already heard how that can actually have a big lasting, you know, intergenerational, you know, for generations that can, that can last, that, that kind of fear. Um, you might also get... Uh, the fear of being separated from loved ones. This is a newspaper report from Kidderminster, and it's a report on an anti-poor law meeting. This is part of the resistance to the introduction of the legislation. I'll read this out, because I can see you know, at the bottom it's quite difficult to get to, but um, one of the proposals seconded and then 
uh, resolved on this meeting is of opinion that the power vested in the commissioners is arbitrary and unconstitutional insomuch as the poor are deprived of their natural rights, mothers separated from their children, husbands from their wives and all confined in prison. And you can see the language with which ordinary people viewed the new poor law as it's going to come into their lives and they can see what's coming. And that's why I started with the, the, the thing from Greece, you know, it's kind of seeing what's, what's coming to you. <clears throat> um, conditions within the workhouse. This is from uh, Castle Ward Pool Law Union. So I think again we're in the northeast. It's an anonymous letter, and lots of letters are because these letters are re referred back to the guardians of the union from whence they came, and they are the ones to do the investigation. So putting your name to these things is is quite difficult. But they talk about the food there which it states, no one can eat and there is no remedy for it at the union. The writer hopes they will come and look after the poor people that have to live upon such rubbish. So the conditions within the workhouse being that kind of, you know, below that of the lowest paid labourer, uh, are the kind of things that the local poor uh, can fear. And again, we're quite late on here. This is 1867. We're nowhere near the beginning of the, of the workhouse. Here, again, we've got a, a number of paupers writing in and he, they do name themselves. There's a guy called William Chance. It's a number of other paupers who do a petition. Uh, and they talk about the bread they get for breakfast, uh, the fact that it, as well as the gruel, is not fit to eat. They talk about being kept under lock and key, unable to speak to their wives and children more than once a week. There's no fire. Their beds are damp. They've repeatedly complained to the governor and the guardians. There's no change. <clears throat> so we can, in the archive, look at what it is that paupers and the poor themselves fear in regard to going into the, the workhouse, and the workhouse being the basis of welfare. Very much against that idea that we saw earlier of individuals being given an amount of money uh, for their welfare. Um, here we have uh, an individual writing in on behalf of a widow. A man called Joseph Birch has died. And as a result of that, the relieving officer says, well, ah, we can't give you the relief this week because your relief is, it's for both of you. So we can't give you. So they don't give her anything that week. When she complains, the relieving officer speaks to her very harshly because he feels that she's reported him to the local authorities. So again, he withholds part of her relief. And this letter, I think it's from a ratepayer complaining about the relieving officer uh, and, and the way that she's been spoken to harshly by the relieving officer, who's complained of her having told all the gentlemen and said that uh, as, she had as she has behaved so, she would get only the two loaves without the relief of one shilling. And her rent is a shilling and twopence. So the, the, the authority and the power that these institutions had over the local poor are really felt by the local poor. And that authority, I think, is feared by the local poor who are having to make claims... Um, for relief. This is one from Bethnal Green uh, and it's a letter again from a, uh, a, a ratepayer who says that one of the inmates has told him about the action of the workhouse master, a most cruel man. Sarah Healy, a young girl of 15 now in the workhouse, uh, I've not finished that sentence off, the girl's on some slight offence. He dragged the girl into his office, shut the door, beat her most cruelly, the cries of the poor girl was old, heard all over the house. And these stories, they come to us in the Pool Law Union correspondence. They don't really come to us anywhere else. I've seen some stuff in newspapers, 
But really, this kind of stuff is here um, in, the, uh, in the poor law union correspondence. And although it takes a, a little harder then to dig it out, that's where you're going to find this kind of material. Now, I put a ton of examples in to show us. And I knew we weren't going to get through them all, but this one is the, the, the last one. This is Reith in North Yorkshire. Uh, and this refers to a man called uh, Simpson. Now, there's a letter from Lionel Simpson, and he writes in on behalf of this other guy who he says he's not a relative of mine. And he says, um, uh, there is now uh, an outdoor pauper. And he talks about him being in the most miserable and neglected condition. The chairman of the local guardians has attempted to give him extra relief, but he can't get the other guardians to agree to that. And he's given a pittance outside, not enough to get by. He's a lead miner, he's worked all his life. Um, he now has uh, a pig, which he's pickled. It's a diseased pig, but he sees it as a big prize because it keeps him out of the workhouse. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he dies. He does go into the workhouse, but by then it's too late. And you get an awful lot of those kind of stories coming through the correspondence where somebody has stayed out and stayed out and stayed out, and by the time they kind of relented and said, OK, I'll go in, it's, uh, it's been a bit late for them. So when, when does this get better? <laughs> or is it just like story after story? And unfortunately... It doesn't get better until really very, very late. It doesn't start to get better until the 1890s. Now, if you look at some of the historiography of this, what, you know, the, the kind of things that other historians have written, traditionally it's seen as being very harsh in 1834 and then steadily getting better. Steadily getting better. Um, but there's a book by Elizabeth Huron, and she looks at that very late period, the 1870s, to 1900, and she says that's not what happens. It gets harder, it gets harder from the 1870s, because um, the Longley report. Longley's a senior civil servant in the Poor Law Board, and he says, "Well, what we need to do is separate the poor out." And he could claim to be quite a traditionalist in this respect, into deserving and undeserving poor. The deserving poor should be dealt with by charity. And the undeserving dealt with by the state. And therefore, in the workhouse. And so they, there's an attempt, doesn't come off all over the country, but there's an attempt to provide a welfare system where welfare from the state only exists in a workhouse. And there is no outdoor relief. Not just the able-bodied males to be excluded, able-bodied females to be excluded. Even the infirm to be excluded. And I've got a, a, a story here from uh, her book where she talks about a man called uh, John Wikes. He's 27, got a wife and two children. Uh, letters from, letters uh, from the same caring and by now overworked doctor. He's got a sympathetic doctor, but the doctor can't provide relief. He can prescribe care, but he can't, he can't enforce that. Um, he says, after the harvest, White's contracted quinsy, an inflammation of the throat. He never fully recovered, and by Christmas, the condition had worsened after a severe dose of influenza. The doctor explained that he made no application for medical outdoor relief, and during this time, he was destitute and dependent on private charity. 
In April 1890, Wilkes tried to return to work at the iron pits at Brixworth, but contracted pleurisy and a severe inflammation of the lungs. He now had to apply to the local medical officer for outdoor relief. Local government board records, MH12 records here, indicate that the doctor certified the patient was too ill to be moved, but the guardians refused the application, offering only indoor relief in the workhouse. Meanwhile, the, the, the pauper's condition deteriorated further. The doctor explained that Wilkes delivered a, plum, a pulmonary inflammation, which resulted in an ulceration of the lung with a constant discharge of a most malignant and offensive character. The smell of infection was so bad that neither the doctor or a local clergyman nor a farmer guardian from the parish could enter the sick room for more than a few minutes where he lay dying. His wife and his mother nursed him because the stench of his condition was so bad that no paid nurse would attend. The clergyman tried to get Wilkes to enter the workhouse, but he refused because he wanted to die at home and avoid the stigma of a pauper burial after death. And here we're in 1890. This isn't the early period. This isn't the mid-Victorian period. This is, you know, we're, we're really moving on towards the end of the, the system. And what Huron says <coughs> is that it's in the 1890s with the reform of local government that allowed ordinary people to vote for the guardians and for the guardians themselves not to have to be landowners in order for people to stand as guardian. Those are the things that changed it. What she says is it's democracy that changed it. But it was a heck of a long time coming. And we can see really the generations that were so adversely affected by a welfare system that's, that's really quite shot of holes. So that was another one of my fears, is how do I get out? Because um, if you are... Uh, so we'll look, I'm sure I've got... Yeah, yeah, this is James Archer. James Archer's saying, I'm having to sell off my tools in order to go into the workhouse. Because to go into the workhouse, you've got to be destitute. You have to be destitute to claim relief. So you can't be a little bit poor... And he's saying, you know, <clears throat> he's now being offered the house, but he's refused, preferring to ask the poor law board if they would not allow me to be perpetually pauperised. In other words, once I go in, I can't see how I'm going to get out. And what you do see is charities giving money in order for people to get out. I've seen communities where they have a whip round in order for a family to, to come out. But I've also seen guardians where they lend money through the poor law system. So if the local economy picks up, will lend you amount of money, but you've got to pay that back once you get into employment. And of course, it might be a couple of pounds that you borrow, which means that you might, you might be okay while the economy is up, but as soon as the economy goes back down again, you've still got that debt, you're pauperised, and you're back into the, uh, into the workhouse system. In terms of the sources, the archive is split in two. There is a pool or archive where you have the Poor Law Union Archive and the centre, the Poor Law Commission, Poor Law Board, Central Government Board records. The centre's records, they're with us. And pretty much the correspondence, and the correspondence contains all kinds of stuff. It contains lists of people who die in the workhouse. It will contain lists, uh, annual lists of pauper lunatics, it will refer to individual letters, all of the letters that I've shown you, they're all from uh, the, the polling correspondence. So they have an awful lot of information on paupers, when a member of staff is employed, 
their appointment form will be in the MH12. So if you're looking for staff, it's a key way of getting into the, the staff material. Um, it'll also give you information on contractors who, who, who undertook to do work for the, for the union. In MH9, there are staff registers. So again, if you're looking for staff, that's kind of like you, one of your first port of calls are the, the staff registers. But the staff registers will sort of give you a line, whereas the, the appointment forms in MH12 will give you where they worked last time, why there's a vacancy, what the salary is, you know, are they married, what's their address, all of that kind of, kind of personal uh, data. The other archive that's created is the Poor Law Unions record, where the individual union around the country... Uh, now... One of the best places to start to find out what survives within the locality at the, the, at the county record office, because they have a lot of list records, uh, like the admin, uh, admin and discharge registers, outdoor relief lists, indoor relief lists, birth and death registers, creed registers, punishment books, lunatic registers. <coughs> They'd be held at the local county record office, but, and this is a huge but, there's a mass of it just not there that doesn't survive, that just doesn't survive. What I would do from a family historian's perspective, go to that website, punch in the name of the union that you're interested in, I'll read it out, uh, www.workhouses.org.uk, punch in the name of the union that you're interested in, and there's a section within the page that you'll now hit where Peter Higginbottom, who runs the site, has listed the family history records that survive for that union. So if there are admin and discharge registers, he'll say there are admin and discharge registers for these years to those years. Or there are creed registers from those years to these years. So that's the best place to start. Um, we're extremely good on the conditions. Because any kind of condition within the workhouse where it's been harsh, where there's been a report of a complaint where somebody has died under suspicious circumstances. A, an assistant commissioner would go into the locality, set themselves up in a room, they would do an inquiry where they would take information from staff, paupers, guardians, and all of that material is then housed in the pool or union correspondence. So you get really detailed stuff about individuals. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>